spread his father's word. We believe he was a great rabbi, and we believe that everyone's the son and daughter of God. Uh, he was the son of God. Um, I believe he was a fisherman's son. God, because I was raised in that world. I think of unconditional love, and I think of the beautiful things that he, he came as, you know, to, to teach us, because God sent him. I see him on his cross with his long blonde hair, which he probably didn't have. That's it. <laughs> I would say it was a fellow that was concerned about people's attitudes towards other people and, and how you treated other people and uh, uh, put ideas forth on how you should live your life. Um, he represents uh, to me, you know, uh, sacrifice for us. Uh, I was uh, brought up and raised in the Catholic Church and uh, obviously Jesus represents the, the Son of God. and. And, and the kind of the symbol of our faith. Son of God. But again, that's how I was raised. So I'm just like, a lot of people go crazy about thinking about religion, what they're gonna believe in, where they're gonna go in life. I'm just gonna do what I do, stick to religion I'm stuck with and make it build who I am. And if it makes you better, that's cool. If it doesn't, you should drop it. <laughs> I don't know, just a great man that came and to told us you know, how things are supposed to be, and have suffered every single one of our sins just so we could live longer and prosper through, you know, his father's name, our father. Just life, I believe that there was a man who lived and he, he was rose again. Um, but I also believe that I don't know everything. Well, he's my Lord and Savior. That's what comes to mind for me. You know, the person that a big piece of world history has been focused on. That, you know, this person who I think even those who aren't religious admit was a person who historically lived, uh, you know, has had a profound influence on uh, society ever since. I know that he is God, 100% uh, God, and uh, came to, uh, coming to flesh and living among us for a period of time. Well, everybody's got an opinion about Jesus, right? Everybody has a thought, everybody has a conviction or, or wonders about Jesus. Uh, and I love getting into conversations with folks about this. I love hearing what people have to say. I love sharing what I think about Jesus. And, uh, but i got to confess something to you. There are times when I get into a spiritual conversation about Jesus with someone, and it does not go well. Anybody ever have that happen? I, I, I had the most embarrassing thing happen a few years ago. I was down south speaking at a conference with my buddy Mark, and, and, and we're getting ready to go home. We had to get something to eat, and we saw one of these Cracker Barrel restaurants. You seen one of these things? Do you love it? I'd never been there. And I said to my, well, we, he said, you got to try it. So we decided to try it. Well, we noticed they have rocking chairs on the front porch where people, people watch while they're waiting for a table. I guess they sell the rocking chairs too. So anyway, I, I'm walking along, and in order for us to get to the front door, we had to walk in front of two people in rocking chairs. First one was a, a young woman, about 18 years old, dark hair, dark eyes, quite attractive, young man about the same age. So we got to walk in front of them to get to the door. That's not a big deal, right? So we're walking along, and just as I step in front of this young woman, I hear her say, what's a deist? And I thought, I just wrote a book about that. So I turned on my heel, and I said, young lady, a deist is someone who believes that God created the universe, and then he walked away. 
I said a deist is someone who believes that God sort of wound up the universe like a giant clock and is just letting it tick down. I said a deist is someone who believes that God is distant and disinterested in us. But I said that's not what the evidence shows. And I began to give her the evidence that shows God's involvement with the cosmos, God's involvement with humankind. I began to give her all the data, all the, all the facts about, about cosmology and physics and biochemistry and genetics. I'm just laying all this stuff on her, and she's sitting there, and her eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And, and, and I'm on a roll now. I, I started talking about Jesus angry in the human history. I talked about the incarnation, his miracles, his death. I started to give her the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And she's looking at me, and her eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And finally, I turned to my friend, I said, can you believe Believe it? I happened to walk in front of her. She said, What's a Diaz? My friend said, Lee. She said, Buenos Diaz. <laughs> I really wish that were a joke. That is essentially what happened. It was so embarrassing. She was freaking out, I will say. She was freaking out. But you know what? The good news was the ice was already broken. How do you not get into a spiritual conversation at that point? And it turned out she was there with her boyfriend for the state track meet. And so they took us back to the hotel room where the coach was there and all the athletes. And we got to talk about Jesus for about 45 minutes. So it worked out all right. But man, that was embarrassing. So when Rick called me uh, six times to come and, and be with, you know, talk this morning, I, one of my values was, what do I say uh, not to embarrass myself. That was kind of a, a big value. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to tell you a story. It's a true story. It's my story. And it's a story that begins in atheism. Because I decided, actually at a pretty young age, that, that God does not and cannot exist. I thought that God didn't create people, but people created God. Why? Because they were afraid of death. And so they came up with this idea of this benevolent jelly bean in the sky and this idea of heaven, you know, make themselves feel better when they die. That's what I thought. I mean, I thought the, j- just the idea of an all-powerful, you know, all-knowing, all-loving creator of the universe, absurd, wasn't even worth my time to check out. Now, granted, I tend to be a skeptical person. My background's in journalism and law, so you can imagine to put those two things together, we're kind of a jerk, the skeptic uh, <laughs> that you get. I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune newspaper, and we used to pride ourselves on our skepticism. You know, we didn't want to accept anybody's word at face value. We always tried to get at least two sources to confirm a fact before we'd print it in the newspaper. We actually had a sign in our newsroom that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. How do you know? Maybe she's lying. Got any proof? Got any evidence? Got anything to back that up? That's the kind of skepticism we had. And honestly, don't you want that from journalists? Yes, you want them to be skeptical. My problem, though, was that my skepticism spilled over into cynicism and it spilled over into my spiritual perspective. And so because I had no belief in God, I I really lacked a moral framework for my life. And I'm not saying all atheists are like this. I'm just saying my conclusion was that if there is no God, if there is no ultimate accountability, then I might as well just enjoy myself to the max in this world. So I, I became a hedonist. 
A hedonist, my number one value was to bring maximum pleasure into my life. It was to keep myself happy at all costs. And so I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and narcissistic and honestly self-destructive kind of a life. I mean, that was my life. I had a lot of rage inside of me, a lot of anger inside of me. If he asked me back then, what are you so, why the rage? Why are you so mad? I couldn't have told you. But now I know, looking back, you know what it was? I was always after the perfect high. You know? I was always after that ultimate experience of pleasure. And guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. So I had a lot of anger. I remember once my wife and I got in an argument, our little daughter was there, and I had so much rage, I just blew up. I remember I reared back, and boom, I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. And our daughter's crying, and my wife's crying. It's like, that was my life. In fact, I'm going to tell you the ugliest thing about me, which was when my little daughter, Allison, was just a toddler, if she was alone in the living room playing with some toys, some blocks or whatever, and she would hear me come home from work through the front door, her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in her room and shut the door. Is she going to be drunk again? Is she going to be you know, yelling and screaming and swearing and kicking holes in the wall? You know what? At least it's nice and quiet in here. Friends, that is the ugliest truth about me. My wife was uh, an agnostic, didn't really know what to think about God. And, and so one day we moved into a condo outside Chicago, and the woman downstairs, Linda, was a Christian. And she became best friends with my wife, Leslie. And it was very natural for Linda, because God was such an important part of her life, it was so natural for her to talk about Jesus to Leslie. And Leslie wasn't hostile to this. She was almost 30 years old. Nobody had ever told her this stuff before. So she asked questions. She, they had long conversations, went to church with her and checked it out. And finally, many months later, Leslie came up to me and she said, Lee, I made a big decision. I said, what? She said, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh, no. I mean, as an atheist, this is the worst possible news. You know, you can, I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude or something. You know, spend all her time on Skid Row serving the poor or something. I, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't want to be married to some holy roller. This was not part of the original deal. So first word through my mind, divorce. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't need this stuff. But I stuck around, and, and, and what, what shocked me was over the following months, I began to see positive changes in her character and, and her values and the way she related to me and the children. And, and it was winsome, and it was attractive. And so finally one Sunday morning, I'm sleeping off a hangover. She's getting ready to go to church. And she looked at me. She said, why don't you come to church with me today? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go. Get around this cult, you know, that she's involved in. So... <laughs> So I go with her to this church. It was meeting in a movie theater about a mile from my house. And the pastor gets up to preach. And he was a young guy. I don't even think he was shaven yet. Um, <laughs> his name was Bill Hybels. And he gave a talk called Basic Christianity. 
And I remember sitting there as a skeptic, and, and, and it was like he was just knocking down one after the other my misconceptions about the Christian faith. And I remember walking out that day saying two things. Number one, I was still an atheist. He did not convince me that day that God exists. But secondly, I realized, you know what? If this stuff is true, this has huge implications for my life. You know, duh. So I decided that day, take my legal training, take my journalism training, and systematically investigate, is there any credibility to Christianity or any other world religion? And I launched on what turned out to be a nearly two-year investigation of the evidence. Now, as I started this investigation, I figured out something very quickly, and I'm sure you figured it out as well, and that's this. If you want to determine, is Christianity true and therefore every other contrary faith system in the world false? If you want to get to that bottom line, it all boils down to one question. You know what it is? Did Jesus or did he not return from the dead? That's the ballgame. Why? Because Jesus, in a variety of different ways, directly and indirectly, made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. At one point, he got up before a group and he said, I and the Father are one. And the word in the Greek there for one is, is not masculine, it's neuter. So it doesn't mean Jesus was saying, I and the Father are the same person. He was saying, I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in essence. We're one in nature. And how did the audience understand what he was saying? they picked up stones to kill him because they said, you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. So he claimed to be the Son of God. But so what? I could claim to be, to be the Son of God. Rick could claim he's the Son of God. Anybody could do that. But if Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth, right? Right? <laughs> Apostle Paul recognized this. This is what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. In other words, this is the ball game. So here's what I want to do. For the next few minutes, I just want to hit the highlights of some of the evidence I encountered during my investigation, and frankly, since then, because now I've made it a, a lifelong study, that, that to me establishes that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead and thus authenticate his claim to being the Son of God. Now, as I do this, I want to I emphasize, when I did this investigation, I was a skeptic. I did not give the Bible any special consideration, any special uh, status. Um, you know, I didn't consider it inerrant. I didn't consider it inspired. I didn't consider it to be the Word of God. I do now, but I didn't then. I was a skeptic. But I had to accept the New Testament for what it undeniably is, which is a set of ancient historical documents. And I had some wonderful professors at Yale Law School that taught me how you can investigate ancient documents to try to determine are they telling you the truth. Whether it's an ancient historian, Suetonius or Tacitus or Josephus, you can take the same tests you use to try to determine if they're telling the truth and apply that to the New Testament to try to determine, is it telling us the truth? So in other words, I didn't open the Bible and say, oh, it says Jesus rose from the dead, end of story. I wanted to get behind that. How do I know it really happened? So what are 
What is the evidence? I'm going to use four words that begin with the letter E to summarize the evidence for the resurrection. And I do this because one of the scholars I, has become my friend now and who I interviewed for my book, Case for Christ, Dr. Gary Habermas, one of the experts, great experts on the resurrection in the world, um, he, he likes to use three E's. So just to show them up, I, I do four. <laughs> okay, so what are the four E's that summarize the evidence of the resurrection? First E is the word execution, that Jesus was dead when he was crucified. You have to have a death, right, before you can have a resurrection. So what is the historical record? How did Jesus die? Well, we skim over this a lot, but, whoops, but the Bible says that Jesus, before he was crucified, was flogged by Roman soldiers. And this was standard. This is what they did to crucifixion victims. Before they were crucified, they were flogged. And we skim over that, but friends, as I've researched what this means, this was a horrific, bloody beating that Jesus endured. How many of you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ? Anybody? Yeah. Remember how bloody that scene was where Jesus was beaten? Friends, that does not even fully capture the horrific brutality of the beating that Jesus endured. Let me quote to you an actual eyewitness account to a Roman flogging. Quote, the sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles and tendons and bowels of the victim were laid open to exposure. I mean, I interviewed medical experts who could see the clues in the ancient documents that, 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 that established that Jesus was in hypovolemic shock, shock from a great loss of blood after this beating occurred. And then he's crucified. The nails are driven through his wrists. Nails are driven through his feet. He's hoisted on the cross. I used to wonder, what is the cause of death in crucifixion? What kills you? Because if I'm doing an investigation, I want to interview the medical examiner and tell me what killed this person. What kills you? You know what it is? Asphyxiation. Suffocation is what kills you. Because when you're hanging on the cross, it puts incredible stresses on your chest muscles, and it locks your lungs into the inhale position. And if you want to continue to breathe, you have to lessen that stress on your chest. So the only way you can do that is push up with your feet. And of course, now your bloodied back is scraping against the coarse wood of the cross. And then you exhale, you inhale again, you settle down the cross, and you keep doing that until exhaustion takes over. You can no longer push up, and you asphyxiate, you suffocate. In fact, if the Romans wanted to hasten your death, they would take a metal rod and shatter your shin bones. That way you couldn't push up anymore. You'd sag, and you would suffocate. But we know in the case of Jesus, a spear was driven between his, his uh, ribs. Uh, the medical evidence suggests it punctured both his lungs and his heart, and he was declared dead by multiple experts. Friends, Jesus was dead when he came down off that cross. In fact, you could go to one of the more skeptical um, historians in this area, an agnostic by the name of Dr. James Tabor, and he will say, I think we have need no... I think we have no doubt, no doubt, that given Jesus' execution by Roman ex uh, crucifixion, that he was truly dead. And what I learned is, friends, there is no dispute about this among scholars in the field. I mean, I don't just mean Christian scholars, I mean the whole spectrum of scholarship. That Jesus, why? Because when you study ancient history, one of the things you learn is that we're lucky if we have one or two sources to confirm a fact from ancient history. 
But in the case of the execution of Jesus Christ, we not only have multiple first century independent reports of this in the documents that make up the New Testament, but we've got five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming and corroborating his execution. We have Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans. Tacitus, another early historian. Even the Jewish Talmud admits that Jesus was executed. Friends, this is one of the best attested facts of the ancient world. You would get laughed out of a major academic institution if you claim somehow Jesus wasn't executed. In fact, you could go to an atheist New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludeman of Vanderbilt University, and he will tell you this. Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Indisputable. Now, I don't know how much you study ancient history, but there are very few facts of ancient history that a critical, skeptical, atheist historian like Gerd Ludeman will say is indisputable. One of those facts is the death of Jesus on the cross. The first E is for execution. Jesus was dead. The second E is my favorite. It stands for the word early. We have early reports or early accounts that Jesus rose from the dead. Accounts that come immediately after the event. Why is that important? Because I used to think like a lot of skeptics, okay, i got to give you the fact that Jesus was executed. That's historically indisputable. But certainly the idea he rose from the dead is a legend. And it took a long time for legend to develop in the ancient world, so I figured 100, 150, 200 years after the life of Jesus, stories began to be invented, legends, mythologies about the resurrection of this guy in the first century. But what I learned, I think, absolutely decimates the claim that the resurrection of Jesus is merely a legend. Follow me on this. Remember we said it takes a long time for legend to develop. Get this. We have preserved for us a creed of the earliest church. Right there in the first century, the first Christians would, would, would rally around this creed, the statement of conviction, based on facts that they knew to be true. Now, this creed contains the essence of Christianity. It says, Jesus died, why? For our sins, he was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And then it says, he appeared to 500 people at once. And it adds, by the way, if you don't believe us, they're still around. Go check them out yourself. They'll, they'll tell you. You don't say that unless you're pretty darn sure of what you're saying. And then it, and then it says, Jesus appeared alive to the, to the disciples, to Peter, um, um, and, and to James, a skeptic during Jesus' lifetime, and then um, Paul, who records the creed, says he appeared to him also. So here's what's important about this creed, is how early the report of the resurrection occurs. Paul preserves this creed for us in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3, and I put it in your notes so you have it, you can read it later. Now, historians know that Paul had been Saul of Tarsus, an enemy of Christians, a persecutor of Christians. Within one to three years after the death of Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus. He has this incredible encounter with the risen Christ, and his life is transformed, and he becomes the Apostle Paul. He goes immediately into Damascus. Some scholars believe this was the point at which he was given the creed that he later includes in, the, in, in 1 Corinthians. But others say, no, it was probably three years later. Three years later, Paul goes to Jerusalem and he meets 
with Peter and James, who are the only two people mentioned by name in the creed. And they spend 15 days together. And the word that Paul uses to describe this encounter in Galatians uh, is the word, the Greek word hysterese, which means this was an investigative inquiry. They weren't just shooting the breeze. They were talking about what do you know? How do you know it? You know, and so they had this exchange of information. Most scholars will say this was the point at which Paul was given the creed that he later includes in 1 Corinthians. But either way, it means that this creed was given to Paul within one to six years after the life of Jesus. And by the way, by that time, it was already in the form of a creed, so the beliefs that make up that creed go back even earlier virtually to the cross itself. So there is no huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the later development of a legend that he rose from the death. We got a newsflash that goes right back to the beginning. In fact, one of the greatest historians of ancient history who ever lived was A.N. Sherwin White of Oxford. He studied the rate at which legend developed in the ancient world, and he determined that the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. We don't have two generations of time passing here. We got a newsflash that goes right back to the beginning. It would be unprecedented in the history of the world for a legend to develop that fast and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. In fact, one of the greatest scholars in this area today is James D.G. Dunn. And this is what he says about this creed. He says, this creed, this tradition, we can be entirely confident was formulated as a creed, as tradition, within months of Jesus' death. This is absolute historical gold. When you consider the first two biographies of Alexander the Great were written 400 years after his life, and they're generally considered reliable. And yet here we have a report that goes right back virtually to the cross itself. Friends, you can call the resurrection whatever you want. But I don't think legitimately you can say it's only a legend. And that's not the only report we've got that's early. We have others in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, and the other writings of Paul, all of which date back right there to the first century, all of which were circulating during the lifetimes of Jesus' contemporaries who would have been all too happy to point out the errors if they were making this stuff up. Friends, we got an execution. Jesus was dead. Second, we have reports that he rose from the dead that come so immediately after the event, you can't write them off as being merely legend, but that's not all we've got. You know what else we have? We have a third E, stands for the word empty. We have an empty tomb. The historical record tells us that Jesus' body was put in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, member of the Jewish council. We have good independent historical reasons for believing that's true. It's sealed. Matthew tells us it was guarded by Roman soldiers, and yet it was discovered empty on that first Easter morning. Now, we could talk the rest of the day about all the strands of historical data that establish that the tomb of Jesus was empty, but I'm only going to give you one fact, because to me this is conclusive, and that's this. Even the opponents and enemies of Jesus admitted that the tomb of Jesus was empty. How do we know? Because we know from not only the New Testament, but also from sources outside the New Testament, we know that when the disciples began declaring that Jesus rose from the dead, what the enemies of Jesus did not say was baloney. 
Go look in the tomb yourself. You're going to find the body. They didn't say that. What did they say? They said, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now think about that. What is it? That's a cover story. Implicitly, they're admitting the tomb is empty. But we can explain how it got empty. The disciples stole the body. You see what I'm saying? It's like if you're a teacher and a student comes up to you and says, the dog ate my homework. That student is implicitly admitting, I don't have my homework. But I can explain what happened. The dog ate it. Same thing here. They're implicitly admitting the tomb is empty, but we can explain how it got empty. The disciples stole the body. It's a cover story. Now, friends, it was a bad cover story because nobody believed it then, nobody believed it now. Disciples didn't have the motive, the means, or the opportunity to steal the body. But the point is, implicit in all this is the admission of the enemies of Jesus that the tomb was empty. Friends, the question of history has never been, was the tomb of Jesus empty? Everybody's admitting that. The question of history has always been this. How did it get empty? That's the question. And you go down the usual list of suspects. Romans weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. Jewish leaders of the day, they weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus to stay dead. Disciples weren't about to steal the body. Why? So they could live lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation. We have seven sources from both inside and outside the Bible confirming that the disciples lived lives of suffering and deprivation and were willing to die for their conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead, that his tomb was empty. Liars make bad martyrs. I don't know anybody who knowingly and willingly dies for a lie. Friends, I think the best explanation for that tomb being empty is that Jesus returned from the dead, especially when we combine it with the fourth word that begins with the letter E, which is the word eyewitnesses. Not only was Jesus' tomb discovered empty, but over a period of time, Jesus appears alive in a dozen different instances to more than 515 individuals, to skeptics and doubters and opponents as well as to believers, to men and to women, uh, three times to groups. In fact, the best historical uh, report we've got, this earliest one, this creed, says he appeared to 500 people at once. Um, people touched him, they talked with him, they ate with him. I mean, think of this, 515 eyewitnesses. If we took this empty chair and put it on the platform and called it a witness stand and called to the witness stand every individual who encountered the resurrected Jesus and allow them to testify and be cross-examined for just 15 minutes each? Do you realize we would be sitting in this place around the clock for five straight days? How many of us, after hearing 128 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, would walk away saying, eh, I don't believe it? Remember we said we're lucky if we have in ancient history one or maybe two sources to confirm a fact? Well, get this. For the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming their conviction that the risen Jesus appeared to them. Nine. This is... This is historically an avalanche of evidence. It is so much evidence that let's go back to the atheist New Testament scholar, 
Gerd Ludemann, who was forced by the strength of the evidence to make this statement. Quote, he said, it may be taken not as a possibility, not as a likelihood, but it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. That's the atheist speaking. I couldn't have said it better myself. Now, doesn't it raise a question in your mind? We're like, why is he still an atheist? Exactly. Thank you, sir. Exactly. Why is, you know why he's still an atheist? Same reason I was still an atheist. We found the loophole. There's a loophole that explains all this away. You know what it is? The disciples did not encounter the resurrected Jesus. They merely had hallucinations. They merely had visions. Well, there you go. That kind of explains it away. End of case, right? Well, wait a second. I'm a journalist. I try to check things out. So I went to an expert on hallucinations and visions, uh, uh, an expert on the human mind. He had a PhD in psychology. He was a professor of psychology for 20 years at a major university. He'd written 30 books on psychology. He was the president of a national association of psychologists and counselors. This guy had impeccable credentials. And I laid out all the evidence, and I said, now, Dr. Collins, would you not admit to me that these disciples did not encounter the resurrected Jesus? They merely had hallucinations. And he looked at me, and he said, Lee, that is not possible. I said, well, you seem pretty sure of yourself. He said, well, I am. I said, I don't, why? I don't get it. He said, Lee, you have to understand something about the nature of hallucinations. He said, the best historical report you've got, the earliest report, said he appeared to 500 people at once, right? I said, yeah. He said, Lee, hallucinations are individual events that happen in individual minds. They're like dreams. I can't say to you, how do you like that dream I had last night? <laughs> Doesn't work. Or you can't wake up your spouse in the middle of the night and say, honey, honey, wake up, wake up. I'm having a great dream about a vacation in Hawaii. Let's both go back to sleep. We'll have the same dream. We'll save all the airfare. We'll save all the hotel costs. How many would like to be able to do that? Yes, I would like to be able to do that. Why can't we do it? Because dreams happen in individual minds. They don't spread like the common cold. And then he said something I'll never forget. He said, Lee, 500 people having the same hallucination at the same time would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. And then he said, by the way, if these were merely hallucinations or visions, then I assume the body is still in the tomb, right? Oops, it's gone. Friends, these were not hallucinations. It wasn't a vision, which is another psychological phenomenon where you kind of talk each other into, because you want to see something so much, you kind of talk each other. Peter, Peter, oh, we miss Jesus so much. I, 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 I see him, I see him. Can you see him, Peter? Oh, yeah, I see him in the shadows. That doesn't explain it away, because Saul of Tarsus was not psychologically primed to see a vision of the resurrected Jesus. He hated Christians. He was, a, he was, he was persecuting Christians. James, the half-brother of Jesus, we have good historical reason to believe he was a skeptic during Jesus' lifetime. He wasn't primed for a, a vision that was contrary to every Jewish teaching of the day that his brother would come back from the dead. By the way, what ended up happening to James? He was executed as a leader of the church, proclaiming his brother rose from the dead, what changed him? The creed tells us the risen Christ appeared to him.
Friends, these were not hallucinations. This wasn't visions. It wasn't wishful thinking. It wasn't legends or mythology. These were actual occurrences, actual encounters that the disciples had with the resurrected Christ. They were so transformative, they revolutionized their lives. These guys went from cowards who were hiding and afraid they were going to get executed. Just a few weeks later, now they're transformed. Now they're proclaiming with boldness that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed it up by returning from the dead. And they were willing to proclaim that message to their deaths. And here's what's important about that, because you might say, yeah, 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 terrorists die for their religious beliefs all the time. No, no, totally different. Some terrorist died for his religious beliefs. He doesn't know for a fact his beliefs are true, right? He just believes it. He was taught it. He believes it. He has faith in it. He's willing to die for it. That doesn't tell me anything about the truth of what he believes. But of all the human beings who've ever lived in history, the disciples were in a unique position. They were there. They touched the resurrected. They talked to him. They ate with him. They were in the position to know for a fact whether this was true or whether it was a lie. And knowing the truth, they were willing to die for it. That does tell me something about the ultimate veracity of their message. Friends, I spent two years of my life investigating this stuff, and it all came down to a Sunday afternoon. And I went alone in my room, and I thought, i got to reach a verdict. i got to figure this out. i got to analyze this. So I, I took a yellow legal pad, and I thought, I'm just going to summarize the evidence I've encountered. So I started to. I started to write it out, page after page after page after page after page. And then finally, I put down my pen and I said, wait a second. In light of this avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. <laughs> and so I reached my verdict on that day that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed it up by returning from the dead. And I remember this feeling of being let down. Because I thought, that's it? Two years of my life and that's it? Shouldn't something happen? I was, I was kind of bummed out. But then I remembered a, a Christian friend had, had, had pointed out a verse to me earlier. So I got the Bible, I looked it up, John 1.12. Said, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And as I read that verse, I, I, I realized if you extract the active verbs or, or the key words from this verse, it forms an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So I did believe, based on the data, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, backed up, returned from the dead. I got that part down, but I realized that wasn't enough. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all of my sins. And when I would receive this free gift of his grace, then I would become a child of God. So I got on my knees next to my bed and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And at that moment, I received complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ and I became a child of God. And my very first thought, I got up off my knees, my very first thought was, 
Hey, I thought I should probably tell Leslie about this. You know, she might be curious. I didn't know. So, so I, I walked out of our bedroom, and I walked down the hallway, and I look in the kitchen, and there's Leslie standing behind the kitchen sink. And remember I told you about my daughter, Allison? She was standing in front of her. She was almost five years old by then. And she was standing on her tiptoes, stretching out, and for the first time, she was able to touch the faucet. So I walked down the hallway, I looked in the kitchen, and Allison said, Dad, Dad, look, look, I can reach it. I can touch it. I said, you're really getting big. She ran off. And I turned to Leslie, and I said, Honey, that's how I feel. I said, I feel like for the last two years of my life, I've been reaching out and reaching out and reaching. I just touched Jesus. He is alive. He is resurrected. He is the Son of God. I just gave him my life. And she looked at me, and she burst into tears, and she threw her arms around my neck, and she said, you hard-hearted son of a Baptist, I've been telling you this for two years. Hello. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. She didn't say that. <laughs> I wish she had said that, because that would have been hilarious. <laughs> but that's not Leslie. She burst into tears, and she threw her arms around my neck, and she said, oh, honey, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. She said, when I was a new Christian, I met some women at church, and I told them about you, and I said, I don't have any hope for my husband. He is the hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He will never bend his knee to Jesus Christ. And she said this one elderly, white-haired saint put her arm around her shoulder and kind of pulled her to the side and said, oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And she gave her a verse in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26, that says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I never knew this till years later. But my wife, while I'm on this investigative journey, my wife, behind the scenes, on her knees, is praying this verse for me virtually every day. And can I tell you what happened? Starting on that Sunday afternoon, now that I was a child of God, and then not overnight, but over time as I was baptized, as I, as I learned to read the Bible with fresh eyes, as I, as I learned to worship, as I learned to pray, as I became part of the church, God began to answer her prayers because my values changed and my character changed and my morality changed and my attitudes and my worldview and my philosophy and my marriage and my parenting. I mean, all these things began to change over time for the good. So much so that uh, my little daughter, Allison, I think about this for a second. Here's a little kid, five years old. All she knew for the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent or angry, kicking holes in walls, coming home drunk. That was her whole experience. But starting on that Sunday afternoon, you know what she did? She started to watch. Something's going on with Dad. And she started to listen. Never interviewed a scholar, never studied ancient history. She's five years old, but she could observe, she could listen, she could watch, and she did. Something's going on with Dad. And, and, and she watched for about five or six months, and then finally one Sunday morning, she went up first to her Sunday school teacher and then to Leslie, and you know what she said? 
I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. And at age five, my little girl gave her life to Jesus Christ. And today she's, today she's married to a seminary graduate. She teaches at a Christian school. Together, her and her husband write children's books about Jesus Christ. She is the mother of two of my four precious grandchildren. And we are the best of friends. And same with my son. My son saw the difference that God was making in our family, and he came to faith at a young age, and he took an academic route. He got an undergraduate degree in biblical studies. Then he got a master's degree in philosophy of religion. Then he got another master's degree in New Testament. And a few years ago, after many years of research and study in Europe, he was awarded his Ph.D. in theology from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And now you know what he does? He teaches at a major university, teaches young people about Jesus Christ. Because he said, Dad, there's a whole generation out there. You know, my generation, they don't get it yet. They don't understand. This isn't based on legend and wishful thinking and make-believe and mythology and legend. This is based on a solid foundation of historical truth. And I said, son, you've got your PhD now. You go tell your generation. Friends, God changed my life. He changed my wife. He changed my son. And he changed my daughter. And my wife and I recently celebrated our 41st wedding anniversary. So that's my story. So what do you, what do, you do with it? Let me just end with this. Let me end with this. I just want to apply my story to you. We only have a few minutes left. But let me apply it to you. Let's go back to that equation. Believe plus receive equals become. You know what? A lot of people here, you've already become. You've been adopted as a son or a daughter of God. God bless you. I'm glad you're here. I hope you will take this message, these four E's, and, and talk to people about it. Talk about why we believe what we believe. And I hope it's been an encouragement to you. But let's go back to the beginning of that equation. Believe. I'm just going to be as brutally honest as I can. Some of you are here today because somebody invited you. We're glad you came. But if the honest truth were known, you do not believe. And what I want to say to you is, if you do not yet believe... What I want to say to you is, that is okay. That is perfectly all right. As long as you do what I did and you check it out. I mean, the Bible says in the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you sincerely seek God, guess what? You're going to find him. So seek him. Check it out. Investigate it yourself. You know, you have to buy my books. I've written hundreds and hundreds of pages backing up the kind of stuff I talked about today. You don't have to buy them. Go to the library. Check it out. And get it free. Or go to my website, leastrobel.com, totally free. Hundreds of free video clips of experts talking about why we believe what we believe. You can type in your question, boom, up will come all these free resources. Won't cost you a dime. But you owe it to yourself. And honestly, if I can say it, you owe it to your children and your grandchildren and those yet to be born. You owe it to reach a verdict in the case for Christ. But I'm going to end with this. Listen to me, please. Some of you may believe, but you've never received. Maybe you believe for 20 years, you know. Maybe you believe for 20 seconds. I don't know. It doesn't matter. You believe 
which is good, but your children have not seen a change in your life. I mean, you come to a church like this and you hear people talk about how they have a deep and a real and, and an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, and what are you thinking? In the back of your mind, you're thinking, why is it not like that with me? Why does God seem so distant from me? Could it be because you believe the right stuff and that's great? But there's never been a point in time where you have received this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life and thus become a child of God. Friends, I'm just asking the question. God does not want you in a state of confusion over where you stand with him. He doesn't want you wondering, am I okay with him? The Bible says these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. You can know and have confidence that you are an adopted son or daughter of the Most High. You can know. And I honestly could not forgive myself if I came all the way from Denver to speak to you today. And I didn't give you a chance. If you believe as best you can, but you've never received to do it today, do it now. So let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. And even as I say that, doggone it, I should have brought my daughter with me. I should have brought my daughter to stand up here and look you in the eye and say, what part of this free gift don't you want? Complete cleansing of your sin. Eternity with God in heaven. I should have brought her next time. But if you believe as best you can, then just in your heart, I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird, just in your heart, God will hear you. Just say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you are the Son of God. And I confess, I've not lived the kind of life you want me to live. I've done things, I knew they were wrong before I did them, and I did them anyway. And I confess my sin, and I want to turn from that. And in repentance and faith, I want to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you purchased on the cross when you died for my sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing to endure the torture of the cross so that we can be united in this world and in the world to come. Lord Jesus, help me. Help me live the kind of life that you want me to live because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we know from Luke 15 that a party breaks out in heaven anytime anyone repents and receives forgiveness through your Son. So we celebrate that. We celebrate that. We we. We know what great adventure awaits those who put their trust in you today. So we thank you for that. For those that aren't ready yet, that have too many doubts and too many questions, use this church. Use the books, the website, whatever. Use whatever it takes to open their eyes to their need for a Savior so that someday we can celebrate their rebirth as well. And then finally, for this great church, for the way it... It's like a city on a hill that proclaims your love and grace and truth all over the county and the world. We pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. God Amen. bless you all. Amen. Amen.